On the podcast today, we are going to talk about the life and teachings of Alan Wilson Watts. Alan Watts, for those of you who are familiar with just his normal name. Mm -hmm. But Alan has been influential for a lot of people on the spiritual path. For you and I personally, he has been an influential figure. We've read a lot of his books. And, you know, he has an, an amazing ability to, we were talking about this before the podcast, an ability to uh, be like a scholar, but it's, it's the scholarly work is accessible for ordinary people. So he has this amazing ability to translate and relate the deepest wisdom in the world to a novice. But also, it's still profound for uh, an advanced person. And that's why a lot of people, when they think about Alan Watts, they think, they think of him in the sense of a polymath. So someone who was just, you could give Alan anything. Like, what about, the, the, what about what's happening in the economy, Alan? And Alan would have a way of explaining that that would make sense, right? Yeah, 100%. Yeah. 100%. So. And we'll speak, we'll speak about everything about Alan through this podcast. What we'll do is we'll speak a little bit about his life briefly, his trials and tribulations. And we'll go into... Uh, a lot of the quotes in my books, just to unpack a lot of his teachings so we can get a, a, a deeper understanding of Alan's mind, which is very important. So Alan was the author of 25 books, as most everyone knows, and he uh, is famous for his lectures. But I would say, and, and you would agree with me here, that his written word is so underrated. Like a lot of people, I know that his books are famous too, don't get me wrong, but a lot of people shine a light on his you know the way that he speaks is very eloquent and there's hardly there's not many people like him right like the way that he can verbalize this knowledge yeah he's very sharp-witted right yeah, and yeah. he could uh, uh, converse the, this higher knowledge with just in a, just a casual language and mm. with uh, such a easy and fun manner i think that's why he's very popular he's very popular yeah more so popular now than he was in the 60s and mm. 70s right yeah. so and you know there's so many things about about Alan, like this, a lot of selflessness in Alan's life, like you were mentioning about that the TV series that people are familiar with, Eastern Wisdom for Modern Living. Like, yeah, that when he was really um, young man. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, the black and white uh, yeah. screen lecture. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, mm. and, and he did it all for free, right? Yeah. Like it was a it was a labor of love, like. Yeah, pretty much. It just uh, was a volunteer work for him, and mm -hmm. he just wanted to share the knowledge with uh, as many people as possible. And mm. he did um, work for free, basically. Well, that's mm. kind of interesting on on this sort of path, right? When you're talking about especially ancient Eastern wisdom, you know, if if you want to make money, it's kind of not the not the path to get into. But <laughs> but yeah. if you want to know yourself at a deeper level, then that's definitely. I mean, it, it, it didn't change much from then and now. No, right? no, yeah. no, exactly. So, well, let's just let's unpack Alan's life. You know, Alan was born January 6, 1915 in Chislehurst in London. Chisleyhurst, I don't, I don't, you know, I might be pronouncing that wrong. And he, you know, like he, he always had an ability, they said from a young age, he was reading a lot of texts and stuff like that. His grandma influenced him a lot, mm. um, especially with... Uh, like Asian wisdom and, and, and things of this nature. But then Alan uh, became a... He, be, he ended up becoming an Anglican priest, right? Mm. Eventually. and um, But then he, he moved away from that mm. because of his deep interest in the East. And, yeah. and, you know, we know everything about... You know, most of us probably know the whole trajectory of Alan's life where, you know, lived in 
he was an influential figure in the counterculture movement and then he eventually passed away uh, November 16, 1973 yeah. at the age of 58. Uh, so a young man, right, basically. Yeah, so. yeah uh, I mean, uh, to speak about more in detail, when he was a child, I think his mother was um, a Christian, very religious um, person. And, um, yeah, so he got a lot of influence by that side of the family. Mm. Yeah, and um, uh, when he was uh, a little boy, like some of the his mother's friends doing some missionary work going over in the East, especially in China, and they, they sometimes brought over the, the Chinese um, artwork mm. with them mm. and introduced to... Um, young Alan, mm. and then it, yeah, he got really fascinated by that uh, spacious and nature and human and the kind of relationship that he found in the paintings and things like that, mm. and start to have this wonder about the Eastern world. And through that artwork, then he had this growing interest of Eastern, mm. um, Eastern culture, basically, I mm. think. That's why it kind of interesting mix, isn't it? Like he got um, influenced by her uh, his mother, mm. he, and, uh, her being a strong Christian religious uh, woman, and that's why he um, became a priest. Mm -hmm. and, and again, like he had a keen interest in the theology as well in general, but then he had this uh, uh, really curious and wonder about Eastern knowledge as well. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting because <coughs> I heard Anne Watts actually, his daughter Anne Watts, saying that you know because he was uh, he was he became familiar with a lot of the artwork of the East and, and also through his grandma as well, um, that his, Alan had said to her, he was either going to become an artist or, you know, fall into this sort of path he fell into because she said he was actually quite a brilliant artist, mm -hmm. like a painter. And, you know, no surprise, Alan was very gifted at calligraphy mm -hmm. for, for a foreign, yeah. for a, someone who's not from uh, China yeah. and he was very gifted at calligraphy. Mm -hmm. And so, he had a kind of an artist mind. And it's interesting because that kind of artist mind is kind of filtered into his writing mm -hmm. and also his lectures, right? Like, because that's where he has that innate ability, like what we said, to have scholarship, mm -hmm. but also making it accessible for just everyone, mm -hmm. you know, like advanced or beginner. Yes. I think it's something about him that he was born with, which mm -hmm. is just that free spirit mm -hmm. that I think which is, uh, was in his gene mm -hmm. that... Like he uh, was so knowledgeable about like uh, classical music and art in general, and mm. then he uh, crossed over that knowledge to philosophy. Mm. I think that's why he had this, uh, this such talent mm. to deliver the knowledge in such easy manner and such like a, like a music in your ears, mm. isn't it? Like yeah. it's very easy to understand from reading his books. Yeah, exactly. And like every book, right? Like every, I mean, every book is a, is a knock out of the park. It's not like an average book. Mm. Every book's a home run by him. You know what I mean? Like, it's not like you get an average book. Like yeah. people say, to, uh, ask always you and I, like, what, what are our favorite Alan Watts books? And it's like, well, it's hard to say really. Like, yeah, I mean, we can, we can give a handful, right? Like, it depends on the mo your mood, <laughs> I think. <laughs> Because every single book are really good. Yeah. Good. But what would be your favorite? Like, kind of like a general. Uh, most, uh, like, uh, for me personally, that most uh, kind of um, 
book that came to me and touched my heart the most would be, I would say, the book, mm. because the book is uh, basically um, talking about the Vedanta, mm. the Hindu philosophy, mm. and the non-dualism. But I don't think he mentioned much about the word of Vedanta or Hinduism that much in the book entirely. No. No. But the whole book is about that. Mm. In saying that, he was he is explaining this uh, uh, knowledge of Vedanta in such easy way to understand for all of us. Mm. And just like a very, very uh, casual language mm. that uh, how the life is uh, this uh, great um, game of hide and seek, basically. And that his understanding about that is such a um, really easy way to understand it. That's why, like again, like mm, obviously we um, we were reading this from Hindu different Hindu um, scriptures like um, Gita's and Upanishads and all that. It is, and some concepts can may sound a little bit more confused than not. Mm. But then reading the uh, Alan's book. The, the book, it's called The Book, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> uh, it gave me much more clear understanding of the big bigger picture of what Vedanta is about. Yeah, yeah. definitely. I 100% agree with you. Like, uh, if Actually, personally, like when people are coming into spirituality and they say, what book would you recommend? I say The Book. Because even though like uh, you could say that that book can be for also, and this is the, the genius of the man, for advanced people or it could be like you know reading the book is like reading the Mandukya Upanishad to be honest with you mm-hmm. like except you know Alan does mention Vedanta in there but very briefly mm-hmm. but it's mainly about uh, Vedic philosophy and also a mixture of obviously Buddhism and Taoism and you know the concepts of the game the game of black and white so the game of obviously you know this and that like the Zhuangzi the, the, the uh, Advaita, Advaita perspective of you know, dissecting the world into partiality and this and that. He goes deep into that. But he explains it in a way that's like, yeah, it, it would be hard to replicate for someone to, because his mind was attuned to, like you said, like he had some sort of innate ability to do this, uh, to to articulate that deep knowledge in such a way. And definitely the book, uh, for me personally as well, I, like if you had a gun to my head, I would say that's my favorite Alan Watts book. Mm. But in saying that, I don't like to play favorites, and there's I, there's a bunch of books by Alan I like. I love Dow the Watercourse Way. I love the Way of Zen. I love uh, the Joyous Cosmology, um, the Wisdom of Insecurity. Uh, Become what you are. Oh yeah, but that was that was a later book. That was uh, mm. not from his hands, right? That was a transcription. Oh, okay. um, so, as you know, there's 25 books he wrote with his bare hands and then there's a thousand books after it that have, uh, have been transcribed. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's great. I, I, I support that. But um, the written by his own hands, Psychology East and West. Oh, yep. You know. Uh, uh, nature, Man and Woman. Oh, yeah. Brilliant. I, yep, yep. Yeah. And you read some of those in Korean, right? Yeah, but it was such a poor translation, <laughs> so I I have to read it again in the real in, in language. English, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Mm. But I think nowadays they must have better translations in Korean of what's work. Well, you you would assume. But. Yeah, I, I hope so. Uh, yeah. yeah, I didn't look into much because I actually prefer to read um, the real language that he actually wrote. Yeah, yeah so. of course, of mm. course, yeah, 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 yeah. But those books, like in you know. Uh, 
like for example, like when we talk about the way of Zen, right? If if someone wants to know about Zen, there's two books I recommend to them. It's uh, Introduction to Zen Buddhism by Daisat Suzuki and The Way of Zen by by Alan Watts. Now a lot of people will go throw their hands up who are purists, who are Zen purists, but just the way that both of those gentlemen can explain Zen in a way that's accessible for everyone and at such a deep level, you know, even though both of them, you could say, weren't your stereotypical uh, Zen practitioners, but they were Zen scholars. And, and, and sometimes a scholar has a better way of languaging things than someone who was actually too absorbed. And actually, Alan explains that in the way of Zen, if you remember. Alan, uh, someone said to Alan, the way, why you can speak about Zen the way that you do speak about Zen is because you have a certain distance from the whole monastic uh, yep. thing, yep. right? Mm. So, and, and and another one, another book that I really love, it was his last book that he wrote with his own bare hands, which was Tao the Watercourse Way. And when you read that, you're just like, it's kind of like Alan at the height of his of his wisdom, his maturity, as, as a, just as an individual. Mm. And that is like, it's hard to describe that book because it's like writing on water. Mm-hmm. Like there's just a flow in that book that yeah. that you're just like, I don't know, you know, how this is quite possible an individual could write a book like this. And Al Huang uh, wrote the forward for it and, and they were good friends, obviously. And, um, you know, Al, uh, he wrote, you know, it's pretty emotional forward, right? Because mm-hmm. that was published after Alan he had passed, passed away, away, you know, yeah. so... And we said we weren't going to get emotional on this podcast. It's going to be difficult. You know, um, anyway. But yeah, that, uh, you know, it's hard to talk sometimes about Alan. Uh-huh. Yeah. But um, I remember reading The Watercourse Way. We were in Bangkok, actually, yeah, right. and, uh, and living in Bangkok. Mm. And basically doing nothing. <laughs> and, and I was finishing off actually writing uh, The Science and Practice of Humility which, what, nine years ago, something now, mm-hmm. and just uh, just lying on bed just reading this and just, just mind-boggled, you know, mm-hmm. like how someone could, uh, you know, write a book like that. And that was one of the last kind of books of that, that I had read of his because mm-hmm. I, re- I read a lot of books before that of his. But... Um, mm-hmm. It's just uh, a testament to the man, you know what I mean? Like the ability that uh, just translate that sort of wisdom, you know what I mean, in such an accessible way. And, and I think that a lot of people don't really value the work that he left behind, you know. And I think that's a, you know, we're going to talk about that in a minute. But, um, yeah, those sorts of books, yeah, like the book, Watercourse, uh, Dow the Watercourse Way, I mean. And the... Uh Another good thing about Alan Watts' book is that, like, if you were to study Vedanta, for example, the guitars are, like, this thick <laughs> and, like, sizes like this, right? Yeah, 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 but yeah. the book is very thin Mm-mm. and it's a very <laughs> quite small book mm-hmm. and you can put in your little, like, a little pocket bag if you have. Mm. So it's a small and concise, such fun to read so that's why I think uh, much more approachable mm. for us. And also, I think uh, it's kind of a book that you can read um, time to time again and again. Like mm. like mm. you said, you read it nine years ago. I probably read it around that time, mm. same. But I should actually read it again mm. now. Mm. Then I can maybe get something more out of, out of the yeah. book, which I didn't get before, right? 
So that's just kind of perennial, perennial uh, classics, actually. Yeah, of course, yeah. Mm. Well, you know, I, I mentioned this on the podcast before, you know, when people say, what book will you take away to you if you, if you say, if you go on Sadhana to uh, Tiruvannamalai? And I say, well, I'll take the book and I might take also down the watercourse away. And people mm. think like, huh? <laughs> like, <laughs> take an Alan Watts with you. And it's like, yeah, but it's just, there's a thing about it. You know yeah, I mean? yeah. Not that I would take just those two books, but mm. they would be two that I would take. Mm. Right um, now, the reason why I wouldn't probably take, say, the Way of Zen, for example, because the Way of Zen is, is is a different book. It's it's a book about Zen, and you know, it's, it's quite scholarly. It's quite scholarly, yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Where the book and Tao the Watercourse Ways is Alan writing on water. You yes, know what I mean? It's like a journal or journal, essay, yeah. or yeah. And the book encapsulates. I think you know the book sub uh, the subtitle is the Taboo Against Knowing Who You Are mm-hmm. uh, is. That book kind of encapsulates Alan's mind, I think, mm. and the way that he, the the way that he thought about the world, mm. and the way that he thought about the world was a very Vedic uh, way. So there's no such thing as a separate self, right? There's mm. no um, the, the jiva, mm. the guy on the Jason, everyone watching and listening. Mm. Is, a, is an illusion. It's a persistent illusion, but it's an illusion, right? There's only Brahman or only the Tao, right? And so Alan, in all of his lectures and that, always kind of comes back to that kind of teaching. And that's reflected a lot in the book. So that's why we talk about the game of black and white, you know, the game of hide and seek. Again, these ways he, he languages it, right? Like the game of hide and seek. Like when you hear that and you're like, he takes like a kid's game <laughs> and superimposes it onto something of the greatest nature, yeah, right? So, that's right. but that's the genius of the man. Yeah. It's the genius of the man, you know. Mm. And so, in saying all that, uh, you know, obviously Alan was one of the great figures in the counterculture movement. Yeah. So one of the, you know, let's say one of the great gurus, so to speak. You know, obviously Ram Das, you know. Yeah, Timothy Leary. Timothy Leary. Yeah. Who else? Uh, Christmas Humphreys. Um, I'm oldest Huxley. Oh, Huxley, of course, yeah. Mm. And what a time to be around, yeah. Like, because when I think of like oh, Watts, and I think of that period of time, not just this, not just the counterculture movement, but before that, like the '40s and the '50s, and that. And he was writing in the '40s and '50s. Um, is the 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 amount of sort of great individuals in that period of time? Like you, you mentioned Huxley, we've mentioned Daisetsu Suzuki before. I mean, Christmas Humphreys, um, and even if you go further, Gary Schneider and, and people like this. and mm, Joseph Campbell. Joseph Campbell. And it was interesting the other day we were talking privately when we were saying, oh, Joseph must have been younger than uh, Alan, right? Yeah, because it's a, his memory is more vivid than yeah. Alan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he's, but he's older. He's, yeah, he's old. It's crazy, isn't it? It just goes to show how young Alan sort of died and, yeah, yeah. and how long uh, Joseph lived. Mm. Um and so he was uh, an influential, influential figure in that period of time. And um, you're going to be there's, – there's two ways every, with it, well, this, right? It's a double-edged sword. You're going to be at the forefront of people's minds and, and, and what you're doing, but also you're going to be uh, one that's going to garner criticism as well, mm-hmm. right? And, and he was – even though, you know, we want to focus on the positive, we need to talk about, you know, some of the, the – the criticism about Alan Watts 
to be transparent. And, you know, a lot of the criticism came from probably the way he languaged certain things, like in Zen, right? In Zen, for example, like he, even though he was friends with Daiset Suzuki, like Daiset had, uh, for those who don't know who Daiset Suzuki is, DT Suzuki, if you, mm. um, Daiset had, had uh, criticized him for certain things he mentioned about Zen and, and other people as well, right? And some people were more, Daiset wasn't so, uh, would you say, he wasn't aggressive about it. Mm. Um, but there's other people who are very aggressive about it, you know what I mean, who are like uh, Zen purists, so to speak. And Yeah, they had such a bit more rigid understanding of um, Zen Buddhism, I think, more traditionalist. Yeah, yeah, traditionalist thing, yeah. yeah. And, and Alan understood the tradition too, you know what I mean? But he's languaging it in a way that's, let's say, fresh, right? Fresh for people and approachable for people. And it's not that he was not right on 99% of the time because he was. There's these people. These people who criticise him were looking at certain technical aspects of what he had said and paraphrased some things that he may have said. Mm. And sometimes, when we know when we are in a conversation, we may say things that you might you may think, oh, maybe I was wrong in that situation, and it's all hindsight, right? It's not that everything that we say is absolute. Mm. I mean, this is a big problem still in the world today. People listen to someone and they go, oh, that's what you think. Mm. And it's like, we're just in conversation. Like, Mm-mm. take a chill pill. I mean, we're all going to die one day. Relax. It's, life's not serious. And so, but then, in saying that, we have to talk about the elephant in the room, right? Before we get into the quotes and before we get into his teachings, we have to talk about the elephant in the room. Like, a lot of people are probably familiar with Alan's uh, alcohol issues. A lot of people believe he was a womanizer. Oh, right, yep. Yeah, and mm. things like this, you know what I mean? He did have uh, a few wives, right? Like, mm-hmm. um, And so we, we, we'll talk a little bit about that. But I think the problem with that is a lot of people discount his whole work based on that. And Anne Watts, his daughter, she gets a little, little bit heated about that. And she said that, you know, when we talk about Alan about those things, like these are just his, they were his foibles, right? Like his, his personal weaknesses and... And we ha- all have our own, as a character, we all have our own personal weaknesses. And usually what the moralists or the woke people like to do is they like to, you know, cancel people and pull people up for certain things that they've done in their, their lives, but they don't look at themselves. So they project on other people, but they've got a lot of things about themselves. And we all do, right? We all do have personal weaknesses. And some are more so than others, Right. And we don't know Alan personally, so we don't know why, especially towards the end of his life, why alcohol became a big thing, right? It wasn't like alcohol was a big thing his whole life, but it became a big thing towards the end of his life. Yes. Again, like I think that is also just um, being part of uh, somewhat uh, getting like alienated by the whole society thing, I think. Mm. Him being who he was... I don't think it was uh, emotionally very easy life, I don't believe, because, mm-hmm. I mean, we sometimes feel it too. Like, so that uh, having this all this knowledge and this, um, like, a whole different understanding of the fabric of reality, basically, mm-hmm. uh, had given him a completely different outlook in life and the world and society and whatnot, right? Mm-hmm. And, like, belief system and this kind of stuff. So a lot of things that he must had something like a disagreeing with um, social norms, so to say. 
And I think, uh, like, um, yeah, he was a heavy smoker and drinker later in his life and things like that. It's just a reflection of a somewhat, like, a frustration, disappointment, and, you know. Yeah, it could be all of that. Yeah, right? yeah, and so, something like that. And, I, and I, again, like, you can um, make it, like, as negative as you want mm. that about him. Mm. But... In a sense, to me, that uh, how much of a human he was, mm, yeah. as well, like mm. that is to show that he was also uh, one of us. Mm, yeah, of, of course. Yeah. He wasn't like up in the up in the clouds, up in no. the clouds, or you know, like yeah. Um, yeah, act like a king or anything. No, no, no. He wasn't anything like that. He was just as a um, like really ordinary individual as mm. like anyone else. And, yeah. And that's what that's what I think about that side, actually. Yeah. Mm. Actually, you raise a good point because I think maybe some of the uh, the reasons for all of that was because the the weight of maybe expectation on Alan, like he was, you know, a genius, and but in the, in the same sense, he he understood he was just a human, right? Like like you mentioned, he's he's a human, and it's some we don't know, right? It's hard for. People deal with certain things in certain ways, mm. and so that's uh, we don't know his, him personally. We don't know the reasons behind a lot of it, and I don't think many people do. I think that died with Alan, you know, and so I think that there was a lot of that. Like he just wanted to be recognized, maybe just as just an ordinary guy, but then everywhere he went, like if we'd lecture in Europe or in you know America, he had such a good. Amount of followers back then yeah, because also, of that uh, kind of culture movement. Yeah, of course. He was very popular. Very popular. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there, there is a weight of expectation, right? Because, especially with uh, spirituality in the West, where people usually have a moralistic version of spirituality, which is a Christian version of spirituality. And so they expect spiritual teachers to be a certain way. And so when they see what's smoking a pipe and, you know, having psychedelics and, you know, whatnot, then people you know slander their name you know and i think that that's a very sad thing because you're not really seeing who the individual is what they're leaving behind Mm. the great work that they're doing and how they're just helping people Mm. you're you're focused on personal character and and the foibles of someone you're not focused on what they're actually contributing to society Mm. and to the, the spiritual upliftment of of people and that's, that, that makes me a bit angry when I see a lot of people slander his name because they focus too much. It's a Christian mentality. They focus on the negative side of an individual as opposed to all of the great work that they had done. Mm. You try write 25 books. Seriously, you know, it's difficult. I've only wrote how many now? Six? Mm. I mean, it's, it's work. It's a lot of work. And, mm. and you have to, like what Anne Watts said, like when Alan would write a book, he would go, he would go he would go into retreat, and he would be just so focused he didn't have time for anything else like nothing like not even family. Yeah. And so, and you know that personally with me too. Like when I'm writing a book, I just have no time for anything. Mm-hmm. People are writing to me on Facebook and that, and it's like I just I can't answer these questions. Like mm-hmm. I don't have the mental capacity, mm-hmm. the bandwidth, so to speak. <laughs> and so, because of all of this, because of Alan's uh, alcoholism and this and that. Uh, you know, like Westerners have this big tendency for spiritual one-upsmanship. So they start to slander his name. 
so forth and so on, right? And there was a, a, a situation that I wanted to mention, and this is kind of like an exclamation point on the whole on the whole thing, right? Like where we don't even have to talk about it any further. Because back when Shunro Suzuki went to California, the Zen master Shunro Suzuki, and was teaching American practitioners and this and that, around the same time, and um, one of the students, this is a famous uh, story, one of the students actually said, you know, when they they talked about Alan in, in like a sort of a satsang setting, one of the students said, we used to think he was profound until we found the real thing. So basically Sandra and his name like saying that, you know, we used to think he was profound in the Zen sense until we found the real the real Zen in air quotes, right? And uh, Shunro Suzuki was pretty sharp in his response and was angry. You know what I mean? And you know when you get when you get a Zen master angry, you know you're you're in you're in a bit of, you're a spot of bother. And so Suzuki said, "You completely missed the point about Alan Watts. So about who he was. You should notice what he has done." He is a great bodhisattva. And that's just an exclamation point, you know what I mean? See, Shunro is not looking at, you know, alcohol issues and this and that. And, he, okay, he said a certain thing that may not make sense to Zen and, and whatnot. But, I mean, what are you looking at? You're just looking at your nitpicking hmm. things. You're nitpicking things. That's true. And see, Suzuki, being new to America, had never come across this mentality. Mm. Because as you know, as an East Asianer, you don't have this mentality where you like nitpick at a person to tear them down to make yourself feel better. Mm. That's a very Western thing, right? And so Westerners get in this game of spiritual one-upsmanship and Suzuki was new to this and he was like, why are they talking about this guy like this? Like, look at all the stuff that he left behind. What the hell are they talking about? Whoever could want to criticize uh, Alan Watts in that manner, they're really missing out a big chunk of knowledge that he left behind. Exactly. That's the consequence they have to pay because they, from, igno- ign- from ignoring all the good work that he they left behind, mm. they're missing out on big mind mm. that you could have learned from. Yeah. Just just from being uh, negative towards what the, what he how he was in his uh, private life. Yeah. Mm. Makes me angry, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> um, because, you know, like this whole spiritual one upsmanship, which has infiltrated spirituality these days, is so frustrating. And I have to deal with it on the, mm. the YouTube channel where people are playing games of trying to sound more profound than other people. And, and there's no humility. You know what I mean? Like, if you can learn anything from Alan Watts, learn about humility, which is what he learned through the Eastern traditions. You know what I mean? And maybe part of his frustration is what we are talking about, listening to people trying to sound too profound and tearing him down and this and that for no real reason at all, just because they are bitter people, bitter and jaded people, trying to sound more profound than Alan Watts. Imagine if you were trying to sound more profound than Alan Watts. You've got no chance. You're not even in the right game. Don't start because you're never going to sound more profound than him. Oh, well, what's the whole competition about, really? Exactly. Uh, that's what I don't get. It, it doesn't make any <laughs> sense. And that's why Suzuki shut, shut that sort of argument yeah. down. You know what I mean? Yeah. You... And so we here in this podcast and everyone watching, hopefully, we love Alan Watts. And if Alan is in the afterlife, we toast a, a vodka. 
yeah. <laughs> he liked his vodka. Oh, so, yeah. so we'll toast the vodka. I have my chai, but we'll pretend it's a vodka. <laughs> Thank you for everything, Alan. Yeah. And so we'll get into his teachings now, right? We kind of, I mean, you could talk about his life forever. You know, he was an amazing individual. Um, sure, he had his critics, but most people were supportive, mm-hmm. you know. So, and we've actually, personally, we've been in contact with his son, Mark Watts, before, yeah, yeah, yeah. many years ago. And, yeah. you know, Mark's a great guy and you know, all of his kids love Alan, like, and, mm-hmm. you know, it's a reflection of who Alan was, you know I mean? Alan was, as Ann Watts said, he was kind of an absentee father because he was always working and mm-hmm. always lecturing and this and that. Mm-hmm. But that your children still love you is, you know, that means something, right? Like, oh, yeah. I mean, how could you not? It's a father, right? So, mm. so let's dive into his teachings before we get too emotional. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> and so we're going to read just some quotes from my books because uh, I got some poignant quotes in here. And, you know, we'll talk about it a little bit. Um, this, this quote is from my book, Enlightenment Now. And this is, uh, this is a bit of a long one, right? And this is from The Wisdom of Insecurity. But this... Uh, this is an interesting quote, and actually, even though he wrote this back in the fifties, it, it means when I when I read it, I'm like, oh, I I just couldn't believe how quick he could come up with that kind of um, ideas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and back in fifties. Yeah. So he's talking about this perpetual anxiety within the mind of the, our world, right? And and yeah, like he said, fifties. But again, what were problems in consciousness in the 50s are still problems now. And the problem is, as we've talked about many times in this podcast, this turning in hasn't happened on a large scale. It's only going the other it's way. It's only going the other way, yeah. yeah. Instead of turning away from samsara, we're getting our surfboard and we're like, let's surf this thing till the, yeah. till the end of time. Yeah. <laughs> See where that goes. <laughs> so let's get into this quote. It's a little bit long. Most of the other ones aren't long. So this is from the Wisdom of Insecurity. When belief in the eternal becomes impossible and there is only the poor substitute of belief and believing, men seek their happiness in the joys of time. However, much they may try to bury it in the depths of their minds, they are well aware that these joys are both uncertain and brief. This has two results. On the one hand, There is the anxiety that one may be missing something so that the mind flits nervously and greedily from one pleasure to another without finding rest and satisfaction in any. On the other, the frustration of having always to pursue a future good in a tomorrow which never comes and in a world where everything must disintegrate gives men an attitude of what's the use anyhow. Hmm. Consequentially, our age is one of frustration, anxiety, agitation, and addiction to dope. <laughs> Somehow we must grab what we can while we ca- what we can while we can, and drown out the realization that the whole thing is futile and meaningless. This dope, in air quotes, we call our high standard of living, a violent and complex stimulation of the senses which makes them progressively less sensitive and thus in need of yet more violent stimulation. We crave distraction, a panorama of lights, sounds, thrills, and titillations into which as much as possible must be crowded in the shortest possible time. 
To keep this standard, most of us are willing to put up with lives that consist largely in doing jobs that are a bore, earning the means to seek relief from the tedium by intervals of hectic and expensive pleasure. These intervals are supposed to be the real living, the real purpose served by the necessary evil of work. This is no caricature. It is the simple reality of millions of lives, so commonplace that we need hardly dwell upon the details, save to note the anxiety and frustration of those who put up with it, not knowing what else to do. <laughs> Say. I mean, it, 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 this covers not just any time, right? This this sort of quote. And when he's saying addicted to the dope, it's kind of like the, the, the trends of the time, right? Like what's cool and what's, uh, you know, like what's pop culture and all of this, yeah, yeah. All of this nonsense, right? Like I crave for distraction and try to entertain ourselves and experience the pleasure in the so sh- shortest time. Uh, that's like I get a bit of a goosebumps how accurate it is. I think. Imagine if he was live now, uh, because like you, we're packing everything in right in yeah. our day. Like we can never get off the phone. Mm. We're constantly like our eyes are just like going through the uh, social media feeds. Mm. Our mind is never settled. Mm. Like, and so social media would be part of the dope, right? These days. Yeah. And this only contributes to, like, like he said, frustration, anxiety, agitation. Mm. And mm. even if you're looking at positive things, you're still like agitating the mind constantly. Yeah. Like you're not letting, allowing any sort of equanimity within yeah. within your mind. Mm. And you know, that's a really good one. Yeah, like he said, mm. with like the we're just doing we're living lives that are a bore mm. to sustain. Th- that dope mm. to that attraction and that yeah. distraction of the dope it's interesting right and we try to justify that this kind of lifestyle is necessary evil of uh, work yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. this is the necessary evil, evil of the of, work of right the work, yes. so look okay look whatever like it's a bore mm. but when i get home i get to watch netflix yes like, pretty much you can only watch so many hours of netflix mm. but you're at work like eight to ten hours a day mm. i yeah. mean yeah, well, so that they um, make some money to pay all those uh, bills for entertainment and <laughs> to so, sustain so that kind of last lifestyle. Alan was a good example of someone who didn't go chasing money, like you know when he was living in Vallejo, yeah, like yeah, the houseboat, and yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, like he didn't, you know, he was always on the fringes of society and just doing what he liked to do, yes. like like there was that famous uh, talk by him, "Money is no object." Yes. If money was no object, yeah, yeah, you know yeah, what I mean. Yeah. So that's right. Mm. All right. So yeah, we got that one. Mm-hmm. Any more? Anything more you want to say about that? No, I think that's good. Though. I think we're ready. Well, to he basically it. answers everything that we need to know. Yeah. So <laughs> I mean, and it just goes to show, like, what was yesterday's problems are still today's problems psychologically on a level of consciousness, right? So and yeah. When belief in the eternal becomes impossible, that first line is poignant, right? So <laughs> already, boom. Yeah, it's already because, and and when we look at the way that the world is now, co- uh, contemplating the eternal or the infinite is something that's become impossible, impossible, and not even real. 
it's something that people don't even think is is real so yeah I, honestly i don't think anyone would even contemplate about such topics much anymore no well you can contemplate it through hinduism buddhism Taoism, other religions but some religions are handicapped through uh certain you know limitations mm-hmm. which which essentially makes the idea of the eternal become finite essentially but that's a whole other topic so anyway that one's done mm-hmm. so you want to read you want to read one yes, read the first one what do you got there mm-hmm. book from effortless living mm-hmm. yeah okay so this is from the watercourse way mm-hmm. okay right the chinese call this kind of beauty the following of li an ideogram which referred originally to the grain, jade and wood and which Joseph Needham translates as organic pattern. Although it is more generally understood as the reason or principle of things, Li is the pattern of behavior which comes about when one is in accord with the Tao, the watercourse of nature. The patterns of moving air are of the same character, and so the Chinese idea of elegance is expressed as feng, feng liu, the following of wind. Mm, I love this quote. And that's again from Watercourse Way, right? Like, yeah. And so no, no surprise it was in my book, Effortless Living, because I was talking about Li right. in this book. And Alan explains Li really beautiful in, in mm. Watercourse Way. Yeah. And actually very easy to understand, like when you look at uh, that Taoist idea of Li, not the Confucian idea, the Taoist idea of Li is like that, that just that organic pattern in the world that we actually have psychologically, which, uh, like he says, um, what do you say there? When, when the when we let uh, with the Tao, so mm. yeah, so yeah, the written the the organic pattern understood generally understood as reason or principle of things mm. but then li is the pattern of behavior which comes about when one is in accord that's what with i want that's what i wanted to get to yeah so that li is that pattern that we have when we come into accord with the Tao. Mm. so when we let go yeah. then we find our own personal organic pattern mm. like different different leaves have a pattern right a leaf has a pattern a tree has a pattern you know the markings of jade as they use the markings of jade and wood they often use as as a term in chinese and so uh people have heard us talk about lee many times on the podcast and and read in my books but it's uh yeah alan was influenced a lot by joseph needham right Mm. and so joseph needham was you know a a great scholar in in, in chinese thought back in the, the, the early days and not Joseph Needleman, Joseph Needham. Mm-hmm. So make, make, just make a uh, distinction there. And yeah, like that, that idea of, and Alan kind of uh, is an illustration of that, right? Like in letting go, mm-hmm. you find that, that Lee yeah. in yourself. And another thing what I've just found out that's really outstanding is that it, it, this is by fact that Lee as in writing in Chinese character, in Chinese uh, uh, word, the writing, mm. is, a, is the same character of Lee as in organic pattern mm. to the patterns of moving air mm. are of the same character. Mm, yeah, exactly. So movement of air, when they say movement of air in Chinese character, mm. 
as the same character as Lee. Yeah. So it shares that the organic pattern as Lee, like you said, following your own dharma, yeah. your own path, which yeah, means path. you're following your Lee, mm. which is organic pattern, that mm. is the same using the same character to describe a moving air, right? Mm-hmm. How how beautiful is that? Yeah, like Feng Lu, right? Feng Lu, the movement of yep. wind. Yep. F- following the wind, basically. That's right. It's, and essentially you're following the Tao, mm. right? Like, so when you get, when you've let go and you've become content in your life and, and the next minute you, you, you discover your Li and you, you're in sort of this, this harmonious union with, the nature of things yes and but that's the actual process in Taoism, right that's like right. so and often people hear me talk about Taoist, uh meta, metaphysical psychology when we mm. have you know it's kind of like the Tao, uh de as in mm. virtue mm. li and then you have shang sheng and, and these other elements yes. as well yes um that uh explanation also can be said like what he famously said do you do it or does it do you? Exactly, exactly. Right? Yeah. Yeah, that's that. Once you've found that your Lee and you just, uh, you just uh, go with it mm. without any thoughts, yeah. then that's, I mean, maybe that does you. <laughs> it does you instead of you doing it. Yeah. So we'll come to that in a minute too, that, that quote. So. Yep. So that's it. Yeah. Anyway, we got that one yep. that sorted. Mm-hmm. So let's get to the next one. This one's from the uh, Science and Practice of Humility, my book. And this is from The Way of Zen. So Alan's explaining a little bit of Hinduism here. Okay, so Alan states, Fundamental to the life and thought of India from the very earliest times is the great mythological theme of Atma Yagna, the act of self-sacrifice whereby God gives birth to the world and whereby men, following the divine pattern, reintegrate themselves with God, kind of similar to what you the last mm-hmm. quote. The act by which the world is created is the same act by which it is consummated, the giving up of one's life, as if the whole process of the universe were the type of game in which it is necessary to pass on the ball as soon as it is received. Thus, the basic myth of Hinduism is that the world is God playing hide-and-seek with himself. As Prajapati Vishnu or Brahma, the Lord under many names, creates the world by an act of self-dismemberment or self-forgetting, whereby whereby the one becomes many and the single actor plays innumerable parts. In the end, he comes again to himself only to begin the play once more. The one dying into the many, and the many dying into the one. Mm. So, that's a beautiful quote. I love that quote. Mm. And that's kind of that process, right, of um, the the Atman uh, merging with Brahman. But, but saying merging with Brahman implies separation, right? So, the realization that the Atman is Brahman mm. is, is kind of... Uh, Ted Formasi, yeah, the, the new background here. Alan was a big man of uh, who kind who always reinforced Ted Formasi, Ted Formasi, Ted Formasi. Mm. Thou art that, or that art thou. And so, Alan ex- is explaining here this that what you alluded to before in mm. the book about this game of hide and seek, right? Mm. Um, you know, like 
Maya is basically the game of hide and seek where you're trying to uh, rediscover Brahman, mm-hmm. but you're caught in this game of, yep. you know, illusion, basically. Mm. Yeah. You're like the, you're like back when you were a four-year-old hiding in the cupboard from your brother, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's like um, this um, great dance of Shiva is hiding behind the curtain of Maya. Mm, and yes. your job is to find where that dance of the Shiva is, right? Where Shiva is, yeah. yeah got to untangle that um, illusion of Maya. Exactly, 100%. And so what I, what I like about that is uh, whereby one becomes many, the mm. single actor plays innumerable parts, right? So... Uh, we often talk about on the podcast about this localization of consciousness, which we are, but we are just a localization of the one consciousness, and and we over-identify with the equipment, which is the mind and the body, and and so forth and so on. But we're all part of that one consciousness, and so so in the end, he comes again to himself, only to begin the play once more. Uh, you know, the one going in, uh, into the many, and the many going into the one. So there's a constant process of dying to uh mm. the, the many dying into the one mm. kind of us us merging with brahman and yeah. one dying into the many is probably brahman becoming maya <laughs> you know so to speak so yeah um, mm. yeah it, it, it's a beautiful thing and atma yagna like the the act of self-sacrifice right whereby god gives birth to the world and this is a, a, a prevailing theme in, in hinduism so uh Yajna, Atma Yajna. I don't know why I said Yajna. Atma Yajna. So, the, the, yeah. So, where you constantly, uh, you know, like when we look at Shaivism, we talk about this a lot, where you are sacrificing your ego to merge with Shiva or Brahman. Shiva is a representation of Brahman. And so, that's what Atma, Atma Yajna is. You're, it's a constant process of self sacrifice to reintegrate with the, the, the order of the world. Yeah. The actual divine pattern and order, you know. Mm. Yeah, this is another quote from Effortless Living. And yeah, this is also from the way of Zen. Mm-hmm. Mm. The Buddhist doctrine of the four invisibles is that the void, the sunya, is to a Buddha as water to a fish, water to, uh, air to a man, and the nature of things to the deluded beyond conception. It should be obvious that what we are more substantially and fundamentally, will never be a distinct object of knowledge. Whatever we can know, life and death, light and darkness, solid and empty, will be the relative aspects of something as inconceivable as the color of space. Awakening is not to know what this reality is. Yeah, so he's talking about the four invisibles, that the doctrine of the four invisibles. Yeah. So let's uh, put that there. Yeah, again, this is a depth of his knowledge, especially you know, like like in Buddhism, right? So um. <laughs> it's really good that uh, the last one, awakening, is not to know what this reality is. Exactly. So not to have a logical conclusion yeah. of what it is. That's why he start with this four invisibles that avoid the sunya hmm. is to a Buddha as a water to a fish, air yep. to a man. Yep. There's a emptiness. Emptiness. That, that, Inconceivable emptiness. That's not 
a knowledge, uh, an object of knowledge. Yeah, and like you, yeah, as you mentioned, color of space. What is the color of space? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's really not to know. <laughs> not to know. Yeah. Yeah. And the awakening is not to know what this reality is. Mm-hmm. That is a real awakening. Yeah. Mm. Well, that goes back to the Upanishads too, which Alan would be alluding to as well, right? Like to, uh, to know the Brahman is not to know the Brahman, but not to know the Brahman. You, you, you know the Brahman. Same, the Tao is Tao, Tao the Ching, the first chapter. First chapter, yeah, exactly. Mm. As soon as you try to dissect the... Uh, like Put the name, name and yeah. form, that's not it. And then Buddhism, Nama Rupa, right? Nama Rupa, name and form. Yeah. As soon as you give something name and form, you miss out on... You, yeah. miss, you miss it. Yeah. You're missing it. Yeah, in the, is it the Heart Sutra? The formless is the form. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The form is the formless. Yeah, 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 yeah. the same thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So... You, yeah, I like how he, he begins that with the four invisibles because uh, the void, shunya, yeah. is to the Buddha as water to a fish, air to a man, and the nature of things to the deluded beyond conception. Yeah. <laughs> the nature of things to the deluded. Yeah. The thing is that, that um, yeah, because you've got to think about it that way, right? Like when, you know, often people use the water and fish analogy because mm. fish don't know. They're in the water. They're in the water because yeah. that's just their life. They're encapsulated in that. That's life. Whereas, uh, in, you know, in Vedanta, they would say, we don't know we're in Brahman. Mm. We just, we don't know. We're in Brahman, but we don't know. Maybe some people, you know, who are uh, really deep meditators have mm. come to that understanding. Buddha, Shankara, you know. Or someone who's been blasted and with uh, psychedelics has had a glimpse of that reality, a brief glimpse. But we don't know where we don't know where encapsulated in Brahman because essentially we live in Maya. We have a constructed view in our mind, which dissects the the world into parts. But it's one thing. And that is to say that Maya is not. In reality, it's Maya is the in within your mind. Within your mind, yeah. That is Maya. That's Maya. Yeah. And once you get rid of that Maya in your and mind, this is a, this is Brahman. Yes. Mm. That's what they always talk about in Advaita Vedanta, right? Like, mm. like Alan actually has had said in the past in one of his lectures, he has a picture of Ramana Maharshi as at, just before he walks out, and he always looks at Ramana's face, the mm. one that we have. Mm. Um, it's a famous picture of Ramana, mm-hmm. and he always looks at Ramana and 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 uh, understood that Ramana's like, don't play this game, don't play this game. <laughs> like, oh, all good, all good, all is Brahman. All, all is Brahman. All, all don't, don't like come off it, Shiva. Yeah, come off it. Like, don't don't play this game, yeah, right? That's right? Don't get caught up in all of this, uh, this and that, and yes. and this, yep. and that's a prevailing theme in all of mm. uh, Eastern philosophy, right? From Zhuangzi to to Gautama to uh, you know you name it Patanjali yeah. whoever yeah. it's this prevailing theme of that if we have this Maya view in our mind mm. we can't ever grasp the reality and in like what you said the last line awakening is not to know what this reality is so when you're trying to know what are you doing you're dissecting you're analyzing so that's like telling a scientist. I want you to tell me, I want you to go to the lab and come up with the nature of reality. I want you to measure, I want you to do this and that. And then there's, there's no way they can do it. 
I mean, they come up, I mean, quantum physics and this, they have theories and, you know, they have come far. But the actual, what this is, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, isn't that interesting? Like, um, yeah, in that question for a scientist, they'll come up with um, MC square and relative theory and gravity. And mm. I, don't, again, I don't know anything about science, but they will come up with all that sort of uh, like mathematical equations and physics and in their language, right? <laughs> but that's not it. Mm. No, it's not We're it. talking about nature of reality. Mm-hmm. Not talking about these. Uh, not talking uh, about the building blocks and this. No, and that. that's not what we're talking about. What is this? The it. What is it? That's what we're talking mm. about. It's like one uh, quantum physicist. I can't remember his name. He actually came to the conclusion that all of this study that they were doing, like when they going into the atom and this that, he said they were going the wrong way. Because mm. you're going into the finest, 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 finest detail, and it's just getting finer and finer and finer. It's, yep. it, it's almost like an infinite regress. Mm. But he said we should. We, there has to be a way of kind of stepping back and trying to understand the reality from a different perspective. Mm. And this would be the different perspective, yes. but it wouldn't be accepted within mm. science, obviously. Yeah. Well, that uh, I mean reminds me that how David Bohm was mm. approaching yeah. uh, physics, wholeness. Yeah. yeah, yeah, wholeness. That's what he was. Um, trying to spread yeah. his, his theory. So basically, to understand the nature of reality, you can't measure. That's right. Because when you measure, you're pulling it apart. Yes. So Bomb's saying, we have to understand it holistically. Yeah. And that's what Watts is alluding to as yeah. well. And so what does that mean? Well, we've got to get out of uh, logical conclusions. We've got to get out of this. And, and that's difficult, right? Because scientists, they can't accept that. They won't accept that. In general, most people won't accept that. Mm. You know, people like, not as like you and I and the people watching and listening and this will accept that. <laughs> but, but in general, most people won't accept that because they would think that, yeah, but to know something, you've got to analyze it and study and this and that. Yeah, but you're talking about mm. so, the greatest thing mm, mm. which you're a part of. Yes. That would be like asking the fish to analyze the water. If you if you finally said to them, "Look, this thing you're in is water. Can mm. you analyze it?" Mm. They gotta rise above to see what it is. Yeah, right? they gotta rise above to see what it is. Mm. They they don't know. Like they're in it. Mm. They have no idea. Mm. Too close. And, and that famous koan, the the three pounds of flax, gives you an explanation of how we should approach it. Right, like so in the story, <clears throat> when Tungshan Chochu is is asked by a monk, "What is the Buddha?" And Tungshan says, three pounds of flax. The reason why it has no rational, uh, conclu- con- logical conclusion is it's supposed to get you out of logical conclusion, mm-hmm. uh, out of rational thought. Mm-hmm. Because even thousands of years ago in Zen and, and all the other great traditions, there's the understanding that if you have a logic or a rational perspective of this world, you can't get it. Like that's what Watts is saying in the last right. line. You right. can't grab it. Right. Well, you can't know it because it's still an object of knowledge. Mm. It's beyond knowledge. Right. You can't conceive. It's incomprehensible. Mm. And that's why Tung Shan Chochu said three pounds of flax. A lot of people said, oh, maybe he was measuring flax. And it's not, again, people analyze it. Mm. And it's like, that's not what it's about. It's about mm. he, he enlightened that monk yeah. by getting him out of rationality. Rational. Mm. That's the beauty of it, isn't it? Yeah. And Alan, I think, really understood that that perspective, and that's why he spoke about that a lot about like not trying to like 
Don't try to get it. Yeah. Don't give it a name. He would say to about God, don't give it a name. You know, because it's name it's nameless. Mm-hmm. I mean, we can use Brahman or Tao mm-hmm. or what what have you, you know. Mm-hmm. But these are just things we're alluding to to that yeah. incomprehensible reality that we are a part of. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's a great one. I love that one. Yeah. All right, let's go to the next one, and this one's from the way uh, from the science and practice of humility. Actually, this is uh, from Alan's book, but I just wanted to read this because this is the, from the Mandukya Upanishad. Mm. I don't know which translation Alan used, but just to, to give people an idea that what Alan was interested in, right? Yeah. So the Mandukya Upanishad being one of the most famous texts uh, about Advaita Vedanta, about non-dualism, and uh, you know you have the Gaudapada Karika, like so Gaudapada was Shankara's teacher's teacher, and so who were the two, two of the most famous figures in Advaita Vedanta? So anyway, in Alan's book, he has the Mandukya. And so I, I have a quote here. It is that which is conscious neither of the subject nor of the object. Sorry, let me start that again. It is that which is conscious neither of the subjective nor of the objective, nor of both, which is neither simple consciousness nor of nor undifferentiated sentience, nor mere darkness. It is unseen, without relations, incomprehensible, uninferable, and indescribable, the essence of self-consciousness, the ending of maya. Mm. That's exactly what we were just talking about, right? Mm. So, and this is, these are the texts that Alan mm. acquainted himself with at, at, a, at a young age, right? And so... This is pure non-dualism here, right? So it's not this, not that. It's none of that. It's incomprehensible, uninferable, and indestructible. It's the essence of self-consciousness, the Atman. Hmm. Yeah, uh, lots of us, the spiritual masters teaching, uh, say that like when seer and the seen is no longer there, that's a, that's once that's been unified, or yeah, unified. That that's the, yeah. the ultimate, the self-conscious, which is Atman. Yeah, yeah. It's the undifferentiated state. Yeah. Yeah. So there is no longer object of uh, what's seen. Mm. Hey, who is seeing it? Yeah. Yeah. The object and the subject become one. Yes. Going beyond all. all beyond that. all that. Yeah. Mm. Beyond all that. So you're not dissecting between this. You're not caught in Maya, right? right. Say so subject, object still implies mm-hmm. Maya. Seer and seen, you're still in the world of Maya. Mm. Yeah. And that doesn't mean that you don't see, like to mm. to to you know clarify for mm. people. It just means that you don't see with partiality. Yes. You've you've transcended the partial mm. realm, which is actually wound up more in our ego and now. Mm. It's in the Maya construction within our mind. So. Yeah. So, I mean, Ellen Watts using this quote is to say he fully understood with the with the Hindu's mind, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Like he, he, he understood. Yeah, he understood, yeah. yeah. Well, he loved Hinduism. Yeah. You know, there's, there's just no doubt. Yeah, like. yeah. So. Yeah. All right. It's a good one. Yeah, I love it. Mm. Okay. So, your turn. Another one. Then from, okay. 
from effortlessly. Okay, this is um is a comment. It's not from a book. It's just maybe from his article or something. Mm -hmm. Okay. Inability to accept the mystic experience is more than an intellectual handicap. Lack of awareness of the basic unity of organism and environment is a serious and dangerous hallucination. Mm. For in a civilization equipped with immense technological power, the sense of alienation between man and nature leads to the use of technology in a hostile spirit to the conquest, in a quote, of nature instead of in intelligent cooperation with nature. Yeah, that's from the Joyce Cosmology. Oh, Joyce Cosmology. Yeah. <clears throat> yes, yeah, so in inability to accept a mystic experience is a more than an intellectual handicap. Mm. It is a serious and dangerous hallucination. Imagine if, as I said, if Alan was alive now. The hallucination is strong. Yeah. Very it, strong. Very strong. Because there is actually an inability to accept the mystical that's experience, right? right? There's right. inability. People think it's like something that's fake and and that's why people are turning away from spirituality in all forms. And technology over time it became almost like religion. It is a religion. Mm. And um, hence Whoever said anything on Twitter or Facebook and whatnot, mm. they uphold that um, mm. idea of thought. Mm. And yeah, that's just... Uh, and like ignoring everything else. Yep. Yep. Ignoring any other like a real logical sense. Yeah. Like that is to say how much they give credit to this um, mm. technology, power in the technology, mm. let's say. Yeah. Well, look at, like I told you, and I probably mentioned it on the podcast, uh, one of the last live streams I did, mm. and people were asking me about, you know, technology and, and like, I was telling people, you you got to get rid of these things on your ears and that all the time because mm -hmm. it's destroying your, like, nervous system mm. and psychology. And there's science to prove that and back that up and whatnot. And not just to mention just your general state of being when you're on social media and you're playing with your phone and that all the time, what it does to your nervous system. And some of the responses were defensive of the technology. Mm. They were defending the technology. Mm -hmm. And I said to them, imagine how ridiculous I would look if I was defending a toaster. Because there's no difference. Mm. Toaster is technology as well. Yeah. Right? But I would look like an idiot, right? If you said to me, that toast, I don't think toasters are great. And I'm like, and I get my back up like, what'd you say? <laughs> what'd you say about the toaster? Mm. That's blasphemy. How dare you say that? And that's the, that's the... That's the um, resistance I feel when I talk about this. And so they better not read my next book coming out. But <laughs> but um, that's the resistance that I get when I mention these things. And I even, like, I, 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 we did that podcast on uh, this, uh, The Social Dilemma. Yep. And people are on Twitter saying, it's a little hypocritical, isn't it? Like, note my sarcasm, right? Like, it's like, how can we talk about this? If, if, we, if we can't use it, also talk about it through social media, right? Mm. Like, you and I are concerned about the health and well-being of everyone in the world. Mm. You're obviously concerned about defending Twitter. Ah, uh, yeah, okay. That's yep. where your concern yep. lies. Yep. Mm. You're defending technological use. Mm. 
for me, if we could get if if the trade off was getting rid of all the technology, all of this digital technology to have health and sanity of the world, I take it any day of the week. I don't care. I prefer everyone to be healthy and sane. Mm. Ask yourself that question: Would mm. you do the same? Mm. And you know, we have to really draw a line in the sand, right? Mm. Like because Alan's talking about this. Joyce Cosmology. He wrote this in the sixties. So like he's understanding that mm. technology is becoming a thing mm. and it's even more of a thing now. I think Russell Brand, he, he put out a podcast, I don't know when it was, a while back, but talking about our like, like our, what do you call it? Like our attraction to technology, mm. like our, our obsession about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Like we need the next phone, we need the next uh, app or, or whatever. Like mm. we, need, we need the next everything mm, mm, mm. to do with technology. Mm. But we don't need the next book mm. about something or this and that, yes. which is crazy, right? Mm. So we're not valuing intelligence. We're valuing mm. digital objects. That's the uh, – here in the, in the quote saying the, that itself is, I think, the sense of alienation, alienation between man and nature, mm-hmm. that you are defending technology over – Everything else. Everything else, yeah. That is the alienation between man and nature, yep. and I think. Yep. That leads to the use of technology in a hostile spirit. Mm, yeah. And that is what's happening with the increasing of a suicide and teen suicide. Yeah, for and, sure. uh, a handicapped um, psychology of individuals and yep. this and that. Yep. It's not only to say that like uh, uh, using science to create a weapon or anything and mm. using the hostile matter, not just a physical sense. And I think it's much more also to do with a psychological sense as well, mm-hmm. that what's, what the technology is actually doing to humanity mm-hmm. itself and the human mind itself, right? Mm-hmm. Like, that yeah. is very um, problematic. Problematic, yeah, yeah, it is, it is. Because people are just going crazy at each other online. Aren't they? They're just mad. And again, we talked about this maybe yesterday, that how uh, we can't really charge people mm. who trolling people, mm. others yeah. and dam- damaging their psycho- psychological state. Mm, mm, mm. And they get away with um, yeah. Yeah. whatever the comment and, and things mm. that they did yeah. online, right? Because of that what privacy laws and yeah. things like that yeah but and there's got to be sometimes there has to be a, there has to be a change of the guard because that can't continue that's what i mean there has to be some sort of um guideline mm. or some sort of uh, moral ethics that has to apply to the online online world right yeah. Yeah. because it is causing damage to uh, people's minds. people are killing themselves that's what i mean like yeah. And we get, people can't charge uh, such behavior yeah. because of uh, such thing as um, pri- privacy issue and whatnot. Yeah. And uh, that, that's that's not acceptable. No, it's not acceptable. Mm. Look at that Japanese act- actress. Uh, I think she did a little bit of wrestling, whatever, who killed herself, I don't know, two, three months ago. Mm. And she got trolled heavy because of something she said or done by like, you know, and you know, the trolling comes from anonymous random people who hide behind their keyboards and Cheetos are hanging off all their face and stuff like that. And then once she kills herself, everyone's like, oh, I, I, I didn't have anything to do with that. Don't, don't, don't like, don't start a game that you can't finish. Don't start a game you can't finish. Because, you know, like if you're in a street, right, if you were walking in the street 
and there's a hundred of us ah, 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 yelling at you and so everyone gets arrested. Mm, right, you're causing you're causing you're causing dra- unnecessary in drama public. in public. Yes, online is still public. Public, yes. There has to be a change in the guard. This yeah. behavior can't continue because yeah. the health and sanity of humanity is at risk, mm. which is what we talked about last week mm. on the podcast. Mm. And so, this can't continue. Mm. And like I, I am just indifferent when I, I get like mm. trolls on mm. on 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 my channel mm. who don't have manners mm. and speak directly at me as if they know me. But I'm a stranger technically. Mm. I'm indifferent. I'm old school, mm. and I will I will deal mm. with you in an old school manner. Mm. And that's what happens. Yeah, you know what I mean. Because me personally, I I'm polite. I have manners, mm. and that's what I—that's how I operate, mm. and that's how everyone is supposed to operate. That's how why we are humans. Yes, that's what makes us humans. Mm. But then you got these people hiding behind the keyboard with the Cheetos all over their face, and attacking people they don't know, mm. and then those people kill themselves because they can't mm. deal with the weight yes. of criticism. Yes, and we're all different, right? You can be like someone who can. So Joe Rogan, right? He has his fair share of critics but yeah. joe is joe right yes he's 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 indifferent to that nonsense online mm-hmm. and he just lives his life mm-hmm. some people aren't everyone mm-hmm. is different yeah some people are more sensitive more, some people are more sensitive and yeah. more fragile and they look too much into it yes which then affects them mm-hmm. so there has to be a way and i talk about this in my next book coming out there has to be a way of identifying these individuals and convicting them mm-hmm. for in mm-hmm. some way mm-hmm. of treating people in an inhumane way. 100%. Because we don't need no more people committing suicide and this and that from this nonsense on social media. It doesn't need to happen. I mean, those trolls cause problems to certain individuals who have supposed to be okay with all these uh, unreasonable criticism mm. and that causing a problem as well. But also the people who are writing all these um, um, comments and whatnot, mm. The, that world slowly losing the moral compass, I think, yeah. in gen, pub, general, Gen- public, general public, yeah. amongst general public, yeah. they feel it's okay mm. to write and, mm. and such uh, mm. things, criticism that unreasonable, like, and th- that is to question people's really um, behavior, yeah. basically. Yeah. It's it's actually common sense right yeah. to behave is a common sense we learn since we were born right yeah. like the first thing that we get to yeah, learn from sure. parents yeah. and nowadays uh, not there is no such a thing amongst any at mm. any age mm. really mm. and that's uh, at risk as well yeah people just have no respect no respect and yeah. you and i have talked about this privately i i wonder how many children or people were actually disciplined when they were younger by their parents mm. Because what I see these days, I see a, pe- a lot of people who are childish, mm. but are adults. Yeah. And which implies to me that they weren't disciplined when they were younger. Mm. You bet your ass, if, if I got out of line, mm. you know, mum and dad put the foot down. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I respect them tenfold for it. Because yeah, that yeah, became, yeah. that's why I am I, the way I am now. Mm. So I often think that a lot of these people don't seem like they had any discipline in their life and and we're not even taught to respect just everyone, Any, anyone. anyone. Mm-hmm. And because it, this is how ridiculous it is, right? Like, l- let's go back to the Japanese lady. Mm. She, um, 
she did said something, right? And then for a troll, this is how easy it is. They get on Twitter, write one line, blah. <laughs> and then they go back to porn. So it's for them, it's nothing. <laughs> Whatever. Yeah. And they don't care. Next one, next, next. Click, yeah. click, click. Yeah, they're just back on porn. You know what I mean? And that's it. But for her, she reads it and then that lags in her mind because then she may paint a picture in her mind that, you know, a lot of people are talking about her. And, you know, the weight of of that criticism can wear someone down. And it does, right? It does. So, but if Alan saw that these days, you know, it'd be amazing to see a book that he would write about <laughs> all of that. But um, Yeah, I mean, he pre- predicted it all, actually. Mm. Well, in saying that, when, when we talk about him, uh, people using technology in a hostile manner, also he's uh, is referring also to the way we use technology for war and... Yep. And and things of that nature, right? Yeah, so, like um, privacy civilians and mm. all that type of thing. Atomic bomb is technology, right? Oh, yeah. So, <laughs> and the, the conquest of nature, right? So the mining industry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All, um, that. all of that mm. to get products that we mm. don't need mm. to, f- to waste time that we desperately need. Mm. Yeah, all these... Um, uh, destruction of nature is all coming from that same reason, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, and that's what he mentions in the joyous cosmology because a lot of that goes. He's talking a lot about psychedelics and nature in that book. It's a great book, and talking about how you know the the, the advancements of technology is, you know, yeah, weighing it down, and that's where from weighing it down and becoming more materialistic, we have the inability mm. to recognize the mystical experience. That's right. So we come to the next quote of Alan, and this is from one of his actual lectures, and it's in my book, The Science and Practice of Humility. And you, you mentioned this before, actually. Uh, do you do it, or does it do you? Mm. <laughs> and this is like, you know, like Alan's way of expressing things is always, it's humorous, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it's funny. It's funny and profound. Mm. Do you do it, or does it do you? And he's alluding to, you know, the it. Mm. The it and you as a as a person, like, yeah. are you living your personal experience, or is there something else that's you know yeah, living yeah. you, living through you? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So, and that's that whole actual lecture. I think it is. Do you do you do it, or does it do you? I think I think that's what the lecture was called. I can't remember yeah, what yeah, it was yeah. called. Something along those lines, and. It is a puzzling question for a lot of people who are not familiar with this because you've got to think about then, you've got to bring into uh, focus um, the individual will versus mm. universal will. And Alan has a famous uh, line where he says, and people often get confused with this line where he says, do you know how you will? And a lot of people when they hear that, they go, will what? Mm. Will do something. Yeah, or... yeah, yeah, but the will, yeah. the will over here. Do you know how you will? And it's a real weird question, right? What do you mean? Like, it's like a riddle. It's like a riddle, yeah. Oh. Like, what is the will? Yeah. You see? Yeah, that, again, that is to say how like a deep his thought was, like mm-hmm. how deep he was thinking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, how, how you will? Where is that will come from? How yeah. does that work? How does it work, yeah. Yeah. It's crazy, yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. Mm. And so you're getting into ideas then of that, 
you know, in Shaivism, for example, they talk about there's only Shiva's will, right? Mm. You think you're at, at, on a jiva level, on yes. an individual pers- persona level, you're running the show. Mm. You know, running the show. Only Shiva's will is happening here. Yes. That universal will is playing out through you, you know, and you get the luxury of living it. Mm. You're not controlling the thing. You have the luxury of living it. Sure, you have small, very small fraction of control of your life. You know, I can control if I lift my hand now, put my hand down, this and that. But even saying that, from a Shiva perspective, even Watts would say, Shiva's still deciding that too. Mm. You're just pretending you're... True. You're pretending to be this person here. That's right. But it's just, it's it's the play. It's it's the dance of Shiva mm. happening beautifully yeah. in harmony, in yeah. rhythm with everything else. I love how he phrases these things because he makes these uh, deep thought uh, such entertaining way. Mm, 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 mm. Like, uh, he's a spiritual entertainer. He actually said that, didn't he? Yeah, he said, he said yeah. that once. He's a spiritual. He's not a philosopher or he's not an educator. I'm a philosoph- uh, philosoph- philosophical entertainer. Yeah, yeah, something, something. along those yeah, lines. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he kind of is, but he's, you know, he's selling himself short a little bit there. He, he, he is a great teacher. Yeah, yeah. But he's been very modest, hmm. and so. But yeah, I loved I loved that one line. Like, hmm. and that's actually. If you have like a, a a sense of spirituality, it means a lot. That sort of question, because hmm. it can bring your mind back to reality. Then, hmm. and and it sh- and it also highlights why certain traditions, such as Buddhism, focus on the uh, downregulation of your own personal will. Hmm. Why that's such an important thing hmm. in Buddhism itself. So don't will to do anything. Just sit. Yeah. <laughs> Just sit and be quiet. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah, but I got and then you're going mad inside yourself and then agitated. Agitated, but then next one as the days go on, the inter- your interiority becomes mm-hmm. spacious. Shanti, 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 right? Like all right. So you got one? So, this is actually your last one. And then I got one more after that. Yep. Okay. This is from Emotional Intuition. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm. Yeah. So I really don't know where it's from. Yep. Okay. Spiritual freedom involves much more than going on living exactly as you have lived before. It involves a particular kind of joyousness. It is a discovery that to accord with the universe, one one has but to live. And when this is fully understood, it becomes possible to live one's life with a particular zest and abandon. There are no longer any obstacles to thinking and feeling. You may let your mind go in whatever direction it pleases. For all possible directions are acceptable and you can feel free to abandon yourself to any of them. I love that quote, eh? I think that's from, let me look, that's, I think that's from um, uh, the Joyce Cosmology. It sounds like it. But I might be wrong or it might be from the book actually. Like, mm. Oh, Become What You Are. It's from one of these, it's a transcription. Mm. Become What You Are. So mm. Become What You Are is a, is a transcribed book after yeah posthumously mm. um published yes so spiritual freedom involves much more than going a, on living exactly as you were before 
Again, the last line, and you can feel free to abandon yourself mm. to any of them, mm. meaning particular zest in life. And let your mind go in whatever direction it pleases. Mm. And all possible directions are acceptable. Yeah. They're acceptable because you've abandoned yourself and you're allowing life just to mm. live you, like what we were talking about with the last quote. Mm. You've essentially abandoned your persona. Yes. Basically. You've thrown the keys up, up. Give up your ego. Yeah, you give up. You've given it up. Mm. Mm. And it's not that you don't live as a person. Obviously, the person, this thing keeps going on, this, this bag of meat. But you have a joyousness and zest about yourself and a freedom. And, and it's in the face. It's in the glow on the face. And, and like, there's no concerns. Yeah. Shanti, it's all good. Mm. All good. Mm. There's a deep recognition that this is not going to be around forever. Mm. But you're in the present, you're living life, mm. and you can abandon your existence to anything that presents itself in life. I think that's the that feeling is best to describe when we were traveling India, for example. Mm -hmm. There is no room for your no. plane. No. Or your ideas, how it's gonna be like. You just have to be ready to accept whatever happens. But again, the funny thing is, that's why it's most um, incredible and outstanding experience in your life, isn't it? Ah, oh, the greatest. Yeah. It's like you saying that. It's like you know all of these people, especially in America, all of these uh, entrepreneurs who are micromanagers and planners. The way to crack them spiritually and to really open them up is like, I want you to get a one-way ticket to India, come with us, and I want you to plan for us. And you're coming with us, but plan how... How you would plan, micro-plan. Yeah, micro-plan, how we're going to travel here. We're going to do this. It's, nothing works. Nothing works. You have to let go and allow life to happen. Yeah. It's like going to Thailand and going, why is this bus not here at five? You don't understand Thai time? They say five, they mean seven. You gotta <laughs> you gotta like, you know, yeah. you gotta loosen up yes. and again abandon yourself to the experience. That's right. Mm. Stop planning and trying to control the reality. Mm. Like you said, traveling in India is a good example. You can plan certain things. We've planned tours there, but even mm. planning the tours don't turn out right. The taxi driver's late, mm. you know, all sorts of chaos happens. Mm. But it's great. And everyone that come, had, came, has come on the tour with us, they've loved it, right? Mm. Like you have all sorts of odd experiences because that's what mm. India is full of. Mm. So, but what it, what it teaches you a place like that is to let go. And when, actually, once you let go, you, have, you feel that joyousness more. Actually, controlling and planning is stress. It's instantly stressed because you're living in a certain world and the life is uncertain and you haven't come to that conclusion. It's, a, it's spacious. Spacious, yeah. Your, your life is so spacious. Your mind is so spacious and you can breathe again mm -hmm. like, because you don't have to think about everything mm. and it, it does it for you. <laughs> You don't have to con be concerned about anything, really. No, yeah, no. that's the f um, I think um, biggest thing for both of us actually having problem, big problem living in place like uh, here in Australia. Mm. Still is 
you I I don't think I can ever be adjusted to fully no. to this because you have kind of your life itself like a like a, it's necessary to plan some things yeah. to basically to maintain your livelihood so to say hmm. right and it's there is no space no. it's just full of thoughts and plans and ideas and like just days just full right mm -hmm. and that's why no wonder people suffer from anxiety and panic attacks and this mm -hmm. and that. but for us what i guess what the difference is that um we had experience we have experienced that such spacious life yeah. so that's why it's uh more difficult for us to go through this time mm. i think yeah Mm. Yeah, there's a lot of like things that in these sorts of developed Western countries that, you know, they're built on planning and mm. controlling. And even though, you know, you can divorce yourself from that yes. completely and you can choose an, another path. Um, but the, often we get ourselves in situations where you require this and that yeah, to, yeah. to just get through the day. Mm. And, and that's uh, a stress on anybody, right? Yes. And that's why we're counting down the clock. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but, you know, um, yeah, yeah it's, <clears throat> we, we, we've, we've structured societies and uh, cultures and everything in the wrong way mm. in the modern world because mm. it's all about, like, getting ahead, achieving things, you know, jumping one hurdle after another. And you actually have no time to just breathe and enjoy life. Mm. That's one of the big things, right? Mm. You don't have any time to just sit back and enjoy and soak in the experience. Mm. And so what Alan's talking about is living a life where you're constantly soaking in the experience. That's right. You are, you are just drenched with joyousness. Mm. You're drenched. Mm. You don't have like any idea of like, I have this aim, I, I want to get to here. Mm. You're living in the sense of Zhuangzi, like with an aimless aimlessness in life. And that can happen in any culture, mind you, but it may require a bit more effort in certain places like Australia or America or Europe or some, yeah. somewhere like this mm. uh, that are built on go, a go-getter attitude, mm. you know. So go-getters mm. are, are very, very uh, comfortable in places like Australia. Yeah, yeah. But a go-getter is not going to be comfortable in somewhere like Nepal because Nepal teaches you, you got to chill, bro. It doesn't matter. We, I think we, get, there, the, we get there in time. Yeah. We get there. I think that's the, one of the reasons why some people really hate those places to travel. Yeah, to travel. They yeah. really can't handle one mm. week and they just quick Well, smart. we've seen that. They, they, they leave the country yeah, we've seen eventually. That. Mm. We've, we've heard people, or oh, things don't work in India. But like, it's not, from, it's not where you're from. Yes. Why do you bring That's your right. idea of reality That's right. and try to influence them with your version of reality? This is how things work here. Yeah. Get used to it. Yes. Let go. That's right. Let go. You're too wound up tight. Yes. Take the screws out. Yeah. And Let loosen, loosen, loosen your the grip. grip. Yeah, loosen yeah, the yeah, grip. Yeah, yeah. You know? Yes. And that's when you will have, like what said, that mm. you'll, you'll abandon yourself mm. to whatever experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah occurs right like mm. he's a great example of that mm. like he lived his life in that manner mm -hmm. in that fashion mm -hmm. you and i we we do our best to live our life in that fashion and, yeah. and most people are probably listening and watching mm -hmm. too right mm. it's a work in progress for most people <laughs> but like yeah. 
we all understand that the more we control, the more we plan, mm. the, the, the less freedom and peace we have in our life. Mm. People say, oh, yeah, but then I'll have financial freedom and this and that. Maybe, maybe. But sometimes when you have financial freedom, people don't actually know how to use their money. They get caught in the game of continuing their financial freedom. And again, they don't know how to smell the roses and just sit That's back right. and, and absorb the experience. You never get out of the habit of accumulating dollars and cents, isn't it? Exactly. Mm. Well, Alan only lived to 58, but those 58 years of his life were, joy- mm. were joyous and he dived right into the experience. Yes. I mean, we, we watched this footage by um, him in his um, property in California how he walks about in the, in, the, in the bush. Conversations with myself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was literally conversation mm. with him. <laughs> Just walking on his own. And Mark, people, Mark filmed. Yeah, that's Mark what I was going to say. He, he, Mark watched film. Filmed, yeah. Yeah. yes. And just walking around with the like a cane stick, with <laughs> yes. the, like a proper louser. Yeah, yeah, like a really baggy sweater. Yeah, 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 yeah. Walking around and it's just he's just gazing at the hills and mountains mm-hmm. and and the, you see this nature yeah, yeah, yeah. at the mountains and it's, nature is wiggly. You're wiggly. <laughs> As it goes uh, up and down, and like mm. it goes this way, that way, and, and it's a curvy, and mm. there's no real structure. And mm. been, but in our society, how we like to straighten the line and measure it and make sure it goes that way and this way, and how we structured our society, and we struck that to reflect on the way we think as well. Yeah, yeah. That yeah. We, it's not wiggly anymore. It will measure that. Nicely analyzed and mm-hmm. like sanitized, and there is no room to move or adjust to anything that's differ. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like when the uh, you know when the Europeans went to America, and the Europeans they think in straight lines. Yes, and the Native Indians, uh, they think in circular patterns. Yes, they think in the wiggliness. Yes, in nature, like so. And that, again, reflects, again, individualistic and holistic psychologies, mm. and <clears throat> which are you know, two parts of the brain, which I've talked about many times. But it's interesting because in the East, because the East is holistic, just mm. like the, the Native Indians, is that the wiggliness is what everything is built off. Mm. Their societies, their cultures, their religions, mm. not straight lines, yeah. not a linear approach. It's all non-linear. Yes. So, you know, like Taoism is non-linear, right? Yes. Like there's, there's all of these traditions are non-linear mm-hmm. traditions. They're built sort of on nature. Hinduism is built off nature as well, Yes. you know. And so that's why Sanatana Dharma is actually translated as the eternal natural way. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not, eternal, mm-hmm. not, it's not mm-hmm. like translated any other way. It's more cyclical and pattern Patterns, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like like looking at a Mandelbrot set, you know, like that fractal pattern, like yeah, yeah, yeah. so that idea of infinity is kind of held at the forefront of a lot of those traditions' minds, right. and I think that that comes from also living closer to nature mm-hmm. in some sense for some of these traditions. So you, you you incorporate yourself in that, where obviously when you're in analytical thinking, you you <clears throat> you're in the measurement process. You're in the measurement. You're in the Maya process of measuring things and this and that. And though that may be good to uh, create medicine and stuff like this 
even though medicine can be created obviously for the holistic mind which is what we see with other traditions yeah, but from herbal medicine yeah herbal medicines mm. and stuff like that but mm. you know what i mean like that yes there are benefits to both psychologies yes, yes. because we everyone has it doesn't yes. matter in eastern one is just more amplified than the other yeah. but the problem is when you're too analytical you start to think too much in straight lines and like what's this alluding to like when he talked when he was up in druid heights there up in his place when he was talking about San Francisco, which isn't far away, San Francisco is, this, is like this grid pattern that just goes over like hills. And it's kind of ridiculous, actually, when you think about it. It's kind of like almost running against nature. Like instead of like mm. working with the mountains, we've just built over the, you know, over the hills and whatnot. And that's why you have these big steep roads and stuff like that in, right. in San Fran. Mm. And so, but up in Druid Heights, he's looking at nature and it's all wiggly mm. and that, that, I love that actually video, that conversation with myself. It's, if anyone hasn't watched that or listened to it, make sure you go out. It's, you could probably find it on YouTube pretty easily. Oh, yeah. And I thought just that, that the way he looked in that footage is to show like how, who he really is mm, to yeah, me. Yeah. Like just he wants to be in nature and living in nature mm, and, mm. and seeing the, such beauty of nature mm. and being being one with it mm. he often talked about the ascetic beauty of nature mm. in a lot of his talks and also in that one it's really good like because he he's making the matcha tea yeah, yeah, yeah. you know like the and just japanese like green tea having tea ceremony with and the bamboo whisker <laughs> and little tea <laughs> yes i mean like if you're <clears throat> if you're someone who likes excitement you're probably not going to like <laughs> like, <laughs> like this video but if you've got a mind like guy of mine yeah. then you're going to really get a lot out of that video. But, oh, yeah. but that's, yeah, like you said, that really showcases mm. who he was, right? Living close to nature, mm. doing simple things like mm. sipping a nice mm. green tea, looking over the mountains. Mm. Oh, man, like oh, sign, sign me up. Yeah, sign me up. How can I subscribe? <laughs> yeah. All right, we come to the last quote. We didn't do these in any order of what's more so-called more profound of this and that we just did it in whatever order guy and i ran randomly had so mm. <clears throat> this uh is actually from Dow the watercourse way and uh alan kind of describes karma uh zitran zitran means spont spontaneity of itself in chinese zitran and shang shen which is uh this idea of uh in chinese of mutual arising so uh Interdependence. Interdependence, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. So <clears throat> what you think is uh, complete opposites, they're mutu uh, mutual and, you know, there's... So he's talking about these in relation to the mystery of duplicity, so to speak. So, all right. This is like the Hindu Buddhist principle of karma, that everything which happens to you is your own action or doing. Thus, in many states of mystical experience or cosmic consciousness, the difference between what you do and what happens to you, the voluntary and the involuntary, seems to disappear. This feeling may be interpreted as the sense that everything is voluntary, that the whole universe is your own action and will. <clears throat> but this can easily flip into the sense that everything is involuntary. The individual and the will are nothing, and everything that might be called I is as much beyond our control as the spinning of the earth is in, in, in its orbit. But from the Taoist standpoint, these two 
views fall short. They are polar ways of seeing the same truth. That there is no ruler and nothing ruled. What goes on simply happens of itself, Zitran, without either push or pull, since every push is also a pull and every pull a push, <laughs> as in using a steering wheel. This is then a transactional view of the world, for as there is no buying without selling and vice versa, there is no environment without organisms and vice versa. This is again the principle of mutual arising, Shangshen. As the universe produces our consciousness, our consciousness evokes the universe. And this relationship, uh, sorry, and this relation transcends and closes the debate between materialists and idealists or mentalists, determinists and free willers, who represent the yin and the yang of philosophical opinion. Love that quote. And that, again, goes back into the non-duality of things, right? Where, like, if you think about push, it's inescapable to think about pull at the same time. Mm. Because, you know what I mean? Like, because what is a push is a pull? Like he said with the steering wheel, right? Steering wheel, you're moving it. Mm. Like, there's, there's, the opposites are, in, uh, are there. Mm. They're not that they're, they're, they're apart, right? It's like talking about yin and yang and saying that the yin and yang exist without each other doesn't make any sense that's why the little dots are within both in the symbolism yeah because they don't exist isolated from the other that's right it's they inextricably mm. connected then mm. there's there's no disconnect it's almost the same thing it is the same thing it is the same thing but you got to think about it in that way, like yes. in the in the push and the pull. Yes. You know, uh, like what Alan says, like what goes on simply happens of itself. You know, it's it's not that there's like this uh, will of uh, God or something in in some sense. You know, like like God in a Christian sense, like blessing you and this and that. Everything's happening of itself because mm. you're a part of this organism, which we could call whatever you want to call it. Give you give it whatever name you will, and we are growing of itself, right? So we are growing of itself, and then there's this this aspect of Shang Sheng, this mutual arising, like this, this principle of, yeah. you know, and what he says beautifully, and I use this quite quite a lot in my books, is as the universe produces. Uh, our consciousness, our consciousness evokes the universe. So that's one of the questions, right? Like when people talk about consciousness and the universe, you know, if you're not thinking about it in that sense, you'll just think, uh, if you're thinking in a materialist sense, you think the universe produces consciousness. Yeah. But without consciousness, where, where does the universe exist? Yes. You see, this is the conundrum. But see, if you take that to a scientist, they will just then say, "Ah, oh, that's just woo. That's just like, mm. like I don't want to. Nothing to worry about. Nothing to worry about. Yeah. Like that. You're thinking too much about it. Uh. And it's like, no, no, no. You're, you're discounting it because even in your observations, you said if there's no observer there, reality is a certain way. Yes, that's right. Yeah, like that. Okay, so universe produces consciousness. Mm. 
and the yeah consciousness, consciousness evokes, evokes the universe. universe. They go together. It's not that there's one. It's not that there's either or. Yeah. Again, like, how could there be universe without consciousness, right? From the first place. So the from the first place, there must been um, consciousness. Yeah. All is Brahman. So All is Shiva. Yes, it's, it's, it's vice versa. Vice it's, versa, it's yeah. the same thing. Same thing. Yeah. This is why in the Heart Sutra, like you said, yeah. formless is emptiness and emptiness is form. Mm. Uh, form is emptiness and emptiness is form, sorry. And so that's, this, that's what this is. Mm. Samsara is Nirvana, Nirvana is Samsara. Right. You can't have one without the other. They both right. go together as one. Mm. They are one. Yeah. Mm. This is a completely like a annihilating dualistic thinking, isn't it? What's good or bad? Yeah. I think this is good, so I do this way. Yeah. And I think that's bad, so I don't do this. Yeah. Like, but it's it's completely gone away from that way of thinking. Exactly. Mm. Exactly. Yeah, what they're sort of attacking in some sense or approaching mm. is the dualistic mind. Getting out of that partial analytical perspective that has a tendency to dissect the world into this and that so we dissect there's samsara there's nirvana they're two different things so like uh the early buddhist idea of you know you you get on the boat and you go across the river of uh, samsara to to the shores of nirvana and then you just burn the boat and you, you go yeah <laughs> that's it you go but then in the Mahayana view is you go across the river, but you realize that once you got to the shore of Nirvana, Nirvana was already, on the, on, already on the other shore. Mm. But it, it, it may have taken you to get to that sort of recognition to understand that right. that it is part of mm. samsara itself. Mm. And so you send the boat back for <laughs> someone else to make the same realization. Right. Or you jump back on the boat and go there. Right. So it's that idea, right, of mm. um, that it's, you're getting out of dualistic thinking. You're, you're, you're approaching this whole world from a perspective of, uh, mm. what do you call it, um, non-duality. Yes. This is um, high level. High level. Well, I write after, right, consciousness and the universe cannot exist independent of each other. Mm. The mystery of dup duplicity is interwoven in the fabric Fabric of consciousness. consciousness. We cannot have a sage without a warrior. They are not evolved. Uh, they are evolved, evolved and involved awareness of the, of the cosmos. There is no good or bad, hot or cold, light or dark, and so on in the real world, as they are all measurements of Maya. Uh. As soon as we imply that an opposite exists, then duality is maintained. In the belief that things are separate, we are still trying to control the universe. So involution and evolution are inseparable states of consciousness where the knower and the known become one. So, so it's, it, is, it is literally there is no this or that. There's no this or that. Uh, Never has been. That just we given the name. We're just given That's the name. Why it's Nama Rupa, like I said. Yeah, we believe in that. It's a belief in that. Believe in that that's different. Yep. Yeah, but we made a dissection between what's right, what's wrong, what's that, what's this, who I am, who you are. So that's why in, in, in Buddhist practice, it, 
they make a big thing out of being able to see the world the way it is mm. instead of giving the name and yep. judgment and things yep. like that just to see things as they as are as they are as they are don't superimpose your own beliefs and agenda onto the problem like in Taoism that they would say that only contributes to the problem yes I always, what do I get on the channel sometimes? People saying, what would the Taoists say about this thing? They would say nothing about it. Because it's very on Taoist to, to say something. To have something, an opinion yeah. on, on a thing. Because that's just the course of nature. That's, what the, that's where spirituality begins. You are caught, you have your mind caught in moralism and not in spirituality. You are confusing, the, confusing both. In a sense that you can see it this way too, right? That in the world that we live in, is the culture wise it's just one sided yeah to see the world this or that yeah and we are all handicapped to see there is no such thing right yeah and the yeah it, it's the, almost like we are um brainwashed yeah since well, yeah, birth. Since birth, yeah. Mm. And we're educated to uphold that illusion. Yes. Because yeah. that's what's productive for the mm. society and the culture. and Yeah, to maintain the, yeah. the system that we built. And like that quote you read before, what Alan said, the in, this, this contributes to the inability to recognize the, or appreciate the mystical yes. experience. Because the mystical, yes. mystical experience is beyond this and that and beyond worldly concerns mm. and beyond the worldliness. Mm. It's beyond all of mm. that. You can either come into contact with that or you can keep your mind involved in all of these mm. concerns that are eventually going to disappear anyway. Mm. They're temporary concerns, mm. as we see with the nature of time, right? All of these things are temporary concerns. They come and go. Situation that we're in now all around the world, it's going to go. 20 years' time, people are probably not even going to think about it. Maybe we will because we all live through it. Everyone listening and watching, but the, young, the younger generation are just going to think, whatever. I didn't live through it, so you don't, you know what I mean. Like, so it's it's like if you're investing your time and energy into that, but not. So in the end, it's so un insignificant. It's insignificant. Yeah. Mm. What is significant? Understanding the non-duality of the world is what is the most important thing in spirituality. That's what all the Eastern traditions are pointing to. Trying to cleanse your mind of this and that. Trying to get rid of that. And if you don't, you'll never understand the mystical experience. You know, you'll never f f feel shanti. You know? mm. You'll never experience ananda, bliss. You won't have any of this. You won't feel the presence of Tao in your life. So, like you mentioned that quote, and what I read is that the inability to have an experience of mystical mystical uh, reality yeah. is, an, is an intellectual handicap. It's a handicap, yeah. And the whole entire population is intellectually handicapped. Yeah. Pretty much. Everyone. Mm. And we're all brought up in it, like what you said. Yes. We're co we're, we are self-cultivated to, yes. to uphold this illusion. And what does the illusion bring? Or what does the illusion breed? It breeds conflict. Yeah. It breeds confusion. It breeds a disharmonious world. We we are just like we are domesticated to think and behave that way. Exactly, exactly. Hmm. 
and only these sorts of traditions are on the fringes yes. and hence why it was important when the cultural revolution happened in china when mao went on a rampage on buddhism and Taoism. because he can't live in a society where marxism can't thrive when that sort of mystical version of reality is lingering around sure you can say okay buddhism and Taoism still exist in china kind of but it's a very watered down version and it's a very suppressed mm. version that only the general chinese people kind of acknowledge as their history mm. but that's what they acknowledge like okay i got a temple uh on tomb sweeping day and you know acknowledge my ancestors yeah, and yeah, so yeah, forth yeah. and so on but it's not like something that's ingrained like like hinduism in india right mm. you walk every <laughs> every corner there's a there's a shrine there's a temple and people are there all day every day yeah yeah it's culture of india that is yeah that's a culture but there is no more culture uh, in china in china, in china. traditional chinese mao did a good job xi jinping done a good job right of you know the, eliminating, eliminating any form of spirituality look at the weaker mm-hmm. people and Xinjiang, right? Mm. So, and like you said, then they acknowledging certain day to uh, worship the ancestor and whatnot. Mm. This is all just a, a superficial, superficial yeah. things, and also that actually contribute back to the communist idea. Exactly, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Mm. Well, that's why I mentioned an effortless living. Like if you look at Taoism in China, and I, and as you know, I wrote most of that book back in 2013, even though it was published in 2018. Is if you look at most of Taoism in China. Uh, these days it's often confused with Chinese folk religions mm. so old Chinese folk religions like mm-hmm. Taoism will be intermingled with them and then also intermingled with Confucianism mm-hmm. and it's hard to discern for Chinese people what is Taoism what's Confucianism what's Chinese folk religion yeah, yeah like yeah. it's all intermingled and mixed and yeah a lot of people regard it as a religion yeah they regard it, yeah not as a like a spiritual path or yeah. a philosophy or a mind science like you know like buddhism for example is a mind science right it's not yes. a, not a religion but people categorize it as a religion because they see in thailand for example they see thai people praying at praying at the buddha but it's more about respect and pain respect to ancestors and so forth and so on it's not quite you know, it's just your stereotype yes their culture it's not the stereotypical religion we think of islam or christianity yeah it's not organized religion. No, no, it's not an organized religion it's a much more ingrained into their culture yes yeah, it's a cultural philosophy yeah cultural it's a culture it's a culture it's a culture and the philosophy is a very foundation of that yeah mm. so these sorts of mystical paths are, have always been dangerous right and particularly in a place like china that is trying to eliminate have been trying to eliminate religion since mao's time and they're not they're not doing a bad job at that you know so (laughs) i mean it's not a good job don't get me wrong but they're not doing a bad job at at, at achieving their objective yes which is the promotion of marxism and this is why marxism this is why someone like jordan peterson has been constantly harping on about the dangers of marxism and people are not recognizing the dangers of such an ideology mm. because it suppresses freedom of speech, fr- suppresses freedom of religion, all these things. Just in general, it suppresses the, the individual mm. in a sense and, and, and you know, it turns everything into a clash of minorities versus majorities and all this sort of nonsense that we see going on in the world these days, which we don't want to get into because that's a whole other side topic. But, um, but that's, again, to heighten and illustrate the fears that 
a lot of societies have had of the mystical experience. Right. The mm. fears they've had of it. Because if you are like, I'm up at the mountains with the yogis and then everyone listening to, to you and I now, they're like, you know what? I'm, I'm done with life. They throw their clothes on. <laughs> it's not, it's not ben- like Gertrude said, it's not beneficial for the, the, the progress of society, but it's beneficial for the progress of the individual, the spiritual progress, you know. So, so society is constantly opposing you and your spiritual evolution. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's telling you, hey, man, you better, you know, get a job, get a mortgage, make sure you have a truckload of kids, mm-hmm. get that car you always wanted that you can't afford. Yeah, that's right. The, when you embrace the mystical experience, right, then you start to think um, otherwise. Yeah. And that uh, otherwise thinking is not beneficial to maintain economy mm, yeah. and somewhere like china is practicing in the national scale yeah national scale yeah it's a um, it's a big thought experiment from the top down yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and other nations are slowly copying copying that model there are elements of america that are copying that model and we all know that no one wants to talk about it because the so-called progressives in america are actually mimicking marxist ideology but that's a, that's a whole other conversation, you know. It's 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 concerning. It's concerning, yeah. But the whole idea is is that it's threatening. Yep. And so, no surprises. Alan was living up in the mountains, <laughs> disconnected from any sort of social oh, yeah. so called setting, like in he would have had in San Francisco. And and yeah, this this yeah, this is one of the one of the really good quotes. Like you said, it's a pretty deep quote. A it's a very high level. Yeah. Because yeah, yeah, so. when you start to contemplate that the universe produces consciousness and consciousness evokes the universe, it, it instantly, like, again, it, it's like the koan I mentioned earlier, the three pounds of flax. It throws your mind out of analytical and rational thinking because it's that argument. What's first, the chicken or the egg? Mm. See? Mm. Where's the answer? You, it, I don't know. There is no answer. Mm. You see, mm. so you've you've got this game of, uh, we have this duplicity, this game that we play, but there's an essential mystery to it. It's not separate, you know. It's like that idea of Shang Shen. They arise, they mutually arise. Mm. You know, I mentioned this also about yoga. You know, I mean, uh, the tradition of yoga, like you know, traditionally yoga was, was a sitting practice movement and do, so non-doing and doing naturally mutually arise came together came together mm-hmm. you, don't, you don't start with not you don't start with non-doing and you go, or going from doing to non-doing and so forth and so on they both mutually arise and that's how existence is that's what zitran is a spontane spontaneity of itself that's why any good great idea you came up with or anything like that you didn't sit there and like you weren't analyzing and it just came you don't know why it just happened. It just comes on. Just comes. Mm. You don't know why you have certain experiences. It just happens. Mm. Can you see that though? Can you see it? You know what I mean? Because that's, mm. that's what that's what nature is. Can you catch it? Can when you catch it? it? Comes? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's a recognition of that. That's right. And Alan Watts resembles that, right? He was someone who just came off of themselves and transformed the world, essentially. Is still transforming the world. Mm. You know. I think so. 
Hundred percent. You don't have to think so because that's what's going on. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. that's what that's yeah. the, the genius of Alan, right? Like so. Yeah. And, I mean, there's just so much you could talk about him. Like, there's thousands of quotes that we have yeah. that we could. We just highlighted those sorts of ones yeah, yeah. because they, you know, are pretty poignant. Mm. But uh, if anything in the world these days, starting to read and listen to Alan Watts is a good start mm. and, and, and sometimes a good end for people too, mm. you know. If you look at all of the chaos and all of this uncertainty and that, that people think that they're experiencing in the world, mm. read the book. You know what I mean? Listen to do you, do you do it or does it do you? Yes. Listen to these talks and, mm. you know. Yeah. Yeah, it's fun and it uh, gives you such um, relief, I think. Mm. I don't know what it is, but just how... You remember that um, lecture that how he was uh, imitate how kids play (laughs) (laughs) and they find it so fun and interesting and that childlike mind is Mm -hmm. that innocence and and uh, yeah just uh, like um, uh, finding fun in just strange and odd things you know. Mm. That was kind of his spirit, and yeah, he had that childlike mind forever. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I love that part of the thing. Yeah, like, yeah. like that's what he said. He said, "Kids, they know it's not serious. They're yeah. looking at us adults. Yeah. They know it. They know it's not serious. So yeah. they're like, yeah, they're doing all sorts of things like because they know it's just fun. Yeah, yeah. This is this is weird. Yeah, like what Alan said that time. He said, "Don't you think existence is weird? Yeah, like and and like when you when you put it." If you put it to a, like a, a person who's never contemplated existence, it is actually a profound statement. Yeah. Don't you think that it's just weird, mm. like what you are and this and that? Mm. Like I told you about with my brother when I was at about 12, 13, and I'm, I'm, and I'm looking at my brother and he's like, what are you looking at? And I'm like, don't you think like, what, what, what's reality? Mm. Like, and he's like, you know, go on off and have a bit of the wacky. Like, what are you on? <laughs> I've never even had marijuana by that time you know what i mean so like i was like but like don't haven't you thought about like what this reality is like we're here Mm. it's weird Mm. isn't it weird like Mm. we're just here Mm. strange Mm. it is it's a strange thing it i think that's uh, again that's so unpolluted the innocent uh, inquiry that is isn't it like Mm. because yeah, I mean, we all uh, have ability to think and we are conscious of ourselves Mm. And it's kind of the very fundamental, innocent wonder about um, living beings in general, mm. I think. Mm. And I think that's what um, Alan Watts had for entire lifetime. Mm. And, uh, and again, um, more curious about these uh, fundamental things, uh, more chance that you will find... Um, pure joyous life in this lifetime mm, i think mm, because yeah. from being um curious and having wonder about life in such manner is the only way that we can find the real um i mean let's say meaning or purpose of life if there is such thing because mm, mm, mm. yeah. again like um exploring that meaning of life and 
having that uh, pure wonder about life, that itself is a journey, and in that journey we find such joy and mm. pleasure and fun, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, of course. So yeah. I think uh, that innocence, again, that innocence is something um, we have to all have. Yeah. You're kind of what you're talking about. It's like not because there's not like there's not so much a meaning of meaning of life, so to mm-hmm. speak. Like not something that you can really determine, but it's a mm-hmm. feeling. Like what Alan, like what uh, Joseph Campbell said. It's more so that feeling of being alive. That's right. You know, and that's what the, that child has, right? Mm. That that intense feeling mm. of being alive. Mm. That's why they everything's fun for them. Mm. And we were all children mm. once, right? Mm. You'd be look, you'd be playing with grass and like things that like, like, yeah. You think about it now, like you're out there playing like with rocks and stuff, and you're like, what the hell? Like, how's the kid get drawing out of that? But it's the unpolluted mind. And again, I think that is to show also how children uh, have, have innocence because mm. they're closer to that that source, that source and mm. the life, mm. right? Mm. And we get older and worn out. Yeah, worn out. <laughs> we know the, we get to know the world, right? Uh. And then we lose sense of innocence because we are not we are no longer in touch with the, that life again, mm. right? Mm. So I think that's why it's important to keep that innocence and that just just a wonder about things and like and and again to be able to do that you have gotta give yourself more space and more time in nature and you know inquiring more things I mm. think mm. and that's what Alan taught us right he taught us to stay a child yeah stay humble stay innocent yeah. And that's why he had an intense curiosity for mm, life. Mm-hmm. Everything was fun yeah. for him. Yeah. That's why, he, actually, with that curiosity, he created all the great work that he has created. Absolutely. That's what's happened, right? So, and that's what he leaves behind. And that's the message he leaves for us, too, is that we don't have to take life so seriously. And we need to come back into contact with that child within us. That unpolluted mind is still there. It's still there. You just, you've covered, you've, you've covered it over with, concern and worry yes beliefs opinions agendas but it's just like it's just like uh, cleaning the window you just get a bit of spray the spray can be meditation or contemplation and just wipe the window clean mm. and come back to the way nature really is mm. the way life really is that's and right. enjoy yes that's what you and i do yeah and the reason why you and i enjoy is because of people like alan watts mm. which you know we're extremely grateful for oh yeah you know mm. so if Alan's listening, we all love we all love you. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, we hope you guys enjoyed. You know, we could talk about Alan all day. There's no doubt, but we think we talked enough and and explored his teachings a lot. And and um, yeah, highly recommend any of his books, any of his lectures. Like we said, go out and watch. You could probably watch for free conversations with myself. Even you could watch Eastern Wisdom for Modern Living, probably. Yeah, I think it's out. It's there. out there, mm. and so. We love you guys too and we'll see you guys next time.